You are listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon by Pastor Terry Riley titled, Understanding the Meaning of the Text, from the series, 40 Days in the Word. For more info, visit creekside.org. Well, our fifth week of 40 Days in the Word, we've been looking really at uh, Bible study the last week and, and this week. I hope you have found it uh, not just enjoyable, but really helpful. I have. I have. Uh, there's been just a couple of things that have taken place in the context of my own devotional life that I thought at first was, ah, it's going to be kind of corny. And then I started doing it because I'm also doing um, the 40 days in the workbook. I found, wow, that's kind of, a, it just adds a nice freshness to my devotional life by doing the space pets. And um, like, that's what I thought was kind of corny. Um, <clears throat> But it's amazing when you engage, even if you have that first thought, that God uses it for your life. So I hope you're really engaging in all facets and parts of it. Today, I want to look at the terms of understanding, uh, in terms of understanding the meaning of a text, to look at one of the most vivid passages, powerful passages in the New Testament, where Jesus gets really personal with his followers. And in the process of that, uh, it's a very intimate, very intimate, and there's just we could unpack it literally for a few months, but we're going to do a flyby on it today, so hang with me. Um, you've probably heard the statement, God doesn't expect us to be fruitful or ex- successful. He just expects us to be faithful. That sounds really nice. It kind of takes us off the hook, but it's not really true. God expects us to not only be faithful, but to be fruitful. Uh, I work with a lot of pastors and churches, and that's kind of what governs their life. The idea that, well, you know, bless God, we've been here for 30 years, and nobody's come to Christ, or nobody, we really don't see a lot of life transformation, and they're happy with that because they're faithful. But that's not what Jesus says. That's not what the New Testament teaches. He doesn't teach that for a church. He doesn't teach it for a pastor, and he surely doesn't teach it for your life. And we're going to see that today in this passage so I want us to look at it, John 15, I want to talk about it, and then we're going to come back to it because there's a kind of a controversial verse in it. And so if you would, on your notes there, I put the full passage on your uh, notes there. I think it's in the back somewhere, and that uh, you can follow along if you don't have your Bible. Um, I would encourage you every Sunday to bring your Bible or your phone. Um, I still love the Bible. I mean, the, the physical, I love the smell of it. I love to be able to write in it highlight. And, uh, but phones are great too. John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus is speaking. Notice at the end there at verse, uh, verse, uh, at the, verse 31, at the end of chapter 14, he says, get up, let's leave this place. That was the place of the Uh, of the upper room where they were that they end up leaving. And he says, I am the true vine. He's walking now, probably through Jerusalem, through a vineyard. And he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. A little controversial statement there, because really that could be translated, he raises up. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. We understand that, that the more you produce something, the more fruit that it's going to produce. And it'll do that with your life as well. There will be times and seasons of pruning. Verse 3, he says, you are already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. We're going to look back in John chapter 13 and see some phraseology that's very similar. He says, number verse 4, remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. You get the picture there. Um, uh, growing up, I used to have to trim around grape vineyards, and boy, I hated it because they, we just had this long rows of these grape vineyards, and I have to trim them, and all of a sudden, this was up in Oregon, man, these snakes would come out, and I, today I still have a phobia of them. But, but, but the branches, they, they come out of the vine. And it's where they get their strength and their support. And Jesus is saying, if you're not connected or remain in me, you're not going to experience that. So he says, remain in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. Fruit because you can do nothing without me. He keeps reiterating a lot of these phrases. 
when you're studying the scriptures, look for reoccurring words and or phrases and note them. Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Whoa. That's a controversial verse in this passage that we'll talk about in just a little bit. Let me read again. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire and they are burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. What's the proof? What's the understanding that shows that you're really a disciple of Jesus Christ? Is that there's fruits going on in your life. There's fruit being produced. What's fruit? Well, we'll talk about that too. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you, so remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. He just said earlier in John chapter 14, 21, that one of the basis, the proof of your relationship with Jesus Christ is that you do what he says, that you do what the Bible scripture says. And just as I have kept my father's commands and I remain in his love, I have spoken these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. It's the joy of Jesus that helps give us joy and to make it complete. So this is my command, love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you to do. I don't call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything. And that's really what's taking place here in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you that you should go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. We're going to look at fruit. We're going to look at just how to understand a text today. I also want to show you how a verse can be misinterpreted um, because we see one of the most misinterpreted verses in the scriptures here. People say this about the Bible, if you notice, that, uh, well, that's just your interpretation, as if everyone can have their own interpretation, and some do, some come up with their own interpretations, um, but it's not true. There's only one really true, valid interpretation of the Scripture, and we, we, we have this thing called the science of rules, the science of the rules of hermeneutics, and that's how to understand and to interpret the Bible so people don't get winged and way off course. Uh, it's one of the major classes that I had to take when I was in the preacher factory, is to teach us how to go to the scriptures and not just make up our own stuff, but to understand the Bible in totality. In the book of Acts, Paul said, I never, I never didn't teach you the whole counsel of God. And the reason people get into trouble theologically and doctrinally is because they don't take into account the whole counsel of God. They don't understand how the Old Testament points to the New Testament, how the Old Testament is filled with Jesus Christ and points to the coming of the Messiah. Now, I know you're going to say, well, okay, there's only one meaning, then why do we have so many denominations with different meanings? Well, because the Bible, the truth is held in tension a lot of times. Like, let me give you a couple. Have you ever heard of, you know, there's some churches that believe in speaking in tongues. We do. Others don't. They're called cessationists. They believe that the, that the spiritual gifts and speaking in tongues and all of those things ceased after the last apostle died. And they kind of have a hermeneutic for how they figured that out. Our hermeneutic says, well, no, no, we believe that it's, it was spoken back then and it's still good for today. How about this one? Have you ever heard some churches believe once saved, always saved? Other churches believe you can lose your salvation. I did a, I did a paper in um, Bible college, in, in, in school, and I had this brilliant teacher. I've talked about him a number of times, Ted Roberts, who was a mathematician. He was a fighter pilot, a Marine fighter pilot in Vietnam. And it just uh, ended up pastoring one of the largest churches in Oregon. And, and I thought, okay, what would, what would Brother Roberts think about this subject? Because I was talking about once saved, always saved, or lose your salvation. I was talking about two theologians, Jacobus Arminius and 
and uh, John Calvin. John Calvin believed that once you were that, you, that once saved, always saved, and he had some doctrinal beliefs over here. And Jacobus Arminius over here said you could walk away from God just like you could walk to Him. So I took the uh, vantage point of Jacobus Arminius, which you could lose your salvation because I thought that's what Brother Roberts would like to hear and would agree with me. After I did a 45-minute presentation on Jacobus Arminius, he looked at me and he goes, and I thought he, you know, he, he said, well, how does it feel to be wrong? <laughs> and he was kidding. He was kidding because I, I, he actually really liked me. And uh, we were talking, and, uh, and, and I said, well, I thought, I thought, Brother Roberts, you'd really line up on this side. He says, I line up on both sides. And he said this really powerful thing. He said, this is, I said, well, how do, you, how do you reconcile this? This was in a class of, I don't know, 12, 15 students, small class. I go, how do you reconcile this, these truths? And he said, this is what I would do. This is a brilliant man. He says, I would preach one in the morning and I'd preach one in the evening. Because what you can do is you can make a great case theologically for both views. And oftentimes, that's how Scripture works. So there are different ways to interpret, but there really is only one interpretation. And I think God does this sometimes. And I know I just confused you there, but I, I, but, but I think God does this because He doesn't want us to just have all this truth in a nice, tidy box, in a bow. And there's a lot of truth that we can. But theologians have been arguing about once saved, always saved, or can you lose your salvation for centuries? And if I had that, I, you know, and I could preach both of these. And you'd go, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. But ultimately, most of the Bible has one interpretation. But there's many applications in the verses. One of the problems that we see in verse chapter 6, when we read it, it, it could produce more terror than it could be sounding terrific in this relational thing. It says this, if anyone doesn't remain in me, he's like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. And I've heard preachers, pre preachers misinterpret this because what they'll say is something like this. You know, if you don't bear fruit by being a Christ follower who is reaching another Christ follower, which is good, makes sense. It's not the only application about fruit. They'll say something like that, and they'll say, that's what you're supposed to do. Okay, good. You know, it's kind of like, a, what's a tomato plant going to have? It's going to have it. It's going to produce tomatoes. What's an apple tree going to produce? It's going to produce fruit, uh, apples. So the fruit is consistent with where it is there. So a Christ follower should be reaching other people to follow Christ. That's good, and there's other applications at that point. But they'll say, I've heard them say this, I mean, even the radio, big time guys, and they'll say things like this, well, you know what? If you don't do that, Guess what? Yeah, I mean, you're just going to be cut off. You're going to be cast aside. You're going to burn in hell. That is a gross misinterpretation of that passage because that's not what it means. Because it's totally ignoring the rules of hermeneutics and interpretation of Scripture. So I want us to look at a few things this morning. First of all, I want us to look at the historical context. Because whenever you come to a passage, that's where you always have to start. These are the things that I have to do whenever I preach. Whether it's an exegetical message, whether we're going through a book of the Bible, or even if I'm doing a, a, uh, uh, just a, on, on a, a particular subject. Uh, somebody asked me recently, well, I see, you know, you, you just sometimes take verses and use them. Well, here's the deal. Whenever I take a verse and use it, I may take it out of its context, but I keep it in its context, which means I don't use a verse and twist the meaning of it. I will understand it in its context to make sure that the principle still applies to the subject matter that we're looking at. Does that make sense? Okay. So whenever you hear me use a verse, you go, well, boy, we're not just going through the I've done what I'm going to talk about today. The first thing is understanding the historical context. Who is it being spoken to? Why are they being told this? Before you ask, what does this verse mean to me? You have to ask the question, what did it mean to the people that God was speaking to back then? What was the original purpose and meaning and focus of that text? The first point is not necessarily application for you today, but what did it mean to those people? Who's it being spoken to? And why is God saying this specifically to them? I've used this example before, but it's, a, it's, it's one that's probably fairly prevalent and, and relevant for our day. 
there's a lot of people that have strong opinions about tattoos. And I could use illustrations about women teaching in the church. I could use, uh, you know, illustrations about drinking. There's a, there's a lot of examples I could use. But let's go with tattoos. Do you know I have a tattoo? Yeah, I got a tattoo. I just got it when I was in Ireland. Now, some of you say, sure, yeah, go for it. That's great. Others of you might go, what? You're a pastor and you've got a tattoo? Are you kidding me? And there's some of you who would believe that that is just wrong. Do you know why you believe that? What shaped your opinion on issues like this? Did you know that tattoos are talked about in the scriptures? Leviticus chapter 19 verse 28 says this, Do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves, for I am the Lord. Well, there it is. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Let's move on. Not quite so fast. Because here's the deal. See, and that's what a lot of people do. That becomes their test case. But there's a hermeneutical principle. The first really main hermeneutical principle is that context is king. That's something we learn in Bible college. Context is king. What is around that scripture really makes it what it is. To learn the meaning of a scripture, you've got to first put it within the context within which it was written. If you take this tattoo verse in context, what you'll find is that Leviticus 19 also forbids planting your field with two types of seeds. How many of you have a garden with different fruits and seeds in it? How many of you have a yard with different seeds or fruits in it? It says don't do that. How many of you are wearing two different kinds of fabric today? I am, and they're letting me preach. But Leviticus 19 says that you're not supposed to have two different, you're not supposed to wear two different kinds of fabrics. And right before the verse on tattoos, it says this, do not cut the hair on the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. As I look around, many of you have defied that command. So the question is, why do we look at verse 28 on tattoos and say, nope, 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 God's against tattoos. And then we look at verse 27, we go, well, it's no big deal. It's because we don't understand the context of what is taking place. Because see, as you read Leviticus 19, God is speaking to his people very clearly. And what he's trying to do is to make sure that they don't align themselves with nations like Egypt who were totally into idolatry. And what he's saying there, because see, historically, Egypt would take on, they would either cut their bodies or they would uh, have tattoos done on their bodies uh, as a representation of people who had died and they would do it in a religious ceremony. And God says, that's not what we do. We're not into idolatry. And, and, I, and I know not all of you are going to be Bible scholars and all of this, and you're not going to go into it all that far. But that's what you have to understand, that the context of where God is writing is very important. In, in Leviticus, remember, there's the ceremonial law, there's the spiritual law, and there's the moral law that God gave Israel in the, book of, in, in the first five books of the Bible. And if you don't understand the differences, you can begin to take a scripture like that and begin to believe that that's truth. The ceremonial law, basically, and that has to do with all the sacrifices, some of the things like tattoos that God spoke about, all of that really was done away with when Jesus came. Not the moral law, not the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not. That's, that's, that's forever. But the ceremonial law and some of the spiritual laws of Israel were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, and we have to understand that. Now, this thing about tattoos, there's a, see, this is how the Word of God works in terms of when I say there's many applications. We can all have different viewpoints on, on, on tattoos. For instance, some of you might use some scriptures about wisdom and say, you know what? This tattooing is permanent decision. Therefore, I don't think it's wise. And I'm a good at that. You're not right or wrong. It's just how you apply the scriptures. And that's not right or wrong. It becomes right or wrong if you try and tell everybody else how to do it. 
if that's good for you. Some might use the scripture about being a stumbling block. Remember that one? Romans chapter 14. Don't do anything that's a stumbling block for a weaker brother. You might go, wow, back in the 60s and even into the 70s and the 50s, anybody that had a tattoo was seen as a rebellious person. So I'm not going to do that. Okay, that's fine. You're applying that scripture, a New Testament principle, to the reason why you're not doing it. That's all right, but just make sure that you don't put that on somebody else. And there's other good reasons people for, for doing it. Some people say this about a tattoo. Well, you know, for me, it's just an outward symbol of an inward commitment. It's a permanent reminder of on this day, God did this, and they got a big cross, and they may have mom underneath it or something. But they say, this is when I come to Christ, and it becomes a permanent reminder of what Jesus Christ did for me. Is that wrong? No. Scripture says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 30, and whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, as long as that doesn't violate another scripture. See how this works? Now, if you're at home, there's probably nobody in this room right now that's under 18, but if you're under your parents' authority, they make the decision for you. When my kids were younger, <clears throat> I told them that you can't have a tattoo until you're 18 when you're an adult, and then you've got to live with it. But I'm not going to let you do it now. So they had to follow that in my home. Now, maybe you don't have that kind of a rule in your home. That's all right. But I didn't want them to have something permanent on their body. I didn't want them to do something before they're an adult and really able to be responsible for it. So I made that decision. And here's the scripture for that. Ephesians chapter, five says that, chapter 6 says that you obey your parents so that you can have a long life. So if you're a, young, if you're a, a student here, that's what you do. See how context is so important? And we're spending a lot of time on this because, because if, if you don't get this, it's where people really get into trouble. So John 15, the context, this passage is about fruit bearing, right in the middle of a four-chapter conversation. Beginning in chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 of the Gospel of John, Jesus is having this conversation. And it's right after this conversation that he's going to pray. And then he's going, to, uh, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he's going to be crucified. See, Jesus has spent three and a half years, years with his 12 disciples. He's handpicked them. He's lived with them. He's trained them to take on the ministry after he dies. And then he's going to resurrect and go back to heaven. So he's spending these last moments with him. And so John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16 is one extended conversation. And to understand chapter 15, it helps to go back to 13 to understand the context. Now, I don't want to be overly confusing this morning, but not all of the Gospels are set up this way, okay? But John here has, has set it up this way, that, that the context becomes important. So it's really set up for four different chapters, and Jesus is in this upper, what we call the upper room with his disciples. So let's, let's go to John chapter 13 real quick and uh, just touch on a couple of things. Familiar story. So this is where it starts. This is kind of the beginning of the context of John 15. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come. What hour? To depart from this world to the Father. He knew he was just hours away from being crucified. So having loved his own, his 12 disciples there who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now by the time of supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Icarus' son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands. Jesus knows that this is it. I'm going to go die, and the Father's given me domain. He knows that he had come from God and that he was going to go back to God. So he got up from supper and he laid aside his robe and he took a towel and he tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin. He began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them and, to, and, 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 to, and he tied a towel around him. Now, Jesus knows that he's going to perform this act of service to the disciples, but it's going to surprise them. It's going to astound them because who should have been doing this? Well, whoever set up the upper room should have set up a servant so that when they walked in, because this was customary, whenever you went to somebody's house for dinner, it was customary that because back then they all wore sandals, you'd walk into this room and then somebody there, there'd be a servant that would 
refresh you by washing and drying your feet. But Jesus does the absolute unexpected. He dons the towel of a servant. He grabs the basin of a servant, the king of kings, the creator of the universe. And all of a sudden, he starts going to the disciples one at a time. And he's washing their feet. They can't believe it. This was unheard of for a rabbi. And then verse 6, it says he came to Simon Peter. He says, Lord, what, what, what are you doing? You're not going to wash my feet. Um, uh, you, you never say Lord and you're not going to do something in the same breath. You know what I mean? You don't say, you, know, you don't call Jesus Lord and then not do what he says. A, a big contradiction. But Jesus answers him and he says, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterwards you will know. Never forget, loved ones, that's how it works with Jesus. A lot of times, He's at work in your life, and you're trying to figure out what in the world is going on, and oftentimes, we don't understand until sometime down the road when we have greater clarity, we get out from the forest so that we can begin to see the trees, and then we go, aha, now I see what Jesus was doing, and Peter doesn't get it here, and he's been walking with him for three and a half years. So he says in verse... Hey, you'll never wash my feet, ever, Peter said. Jesus said, if, you don't, if I don't wash you, you're not going to have any part with me. Well, Simon Peter said, okay, go ahead. Give me a bath, give me a shower, do my hands and my head. And Jesus says, well, hold on here, Peter. Uh, one who is bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet. Uh, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. Now he's talking about you are clean, but not all of you. He's talking about Judas being there because he knows Judas is going to betray him. For he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, you are not all clean. And he's also referencing here this idea that, you know what? You and I, once you come to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit indwells in you, we, we, we are clean. But because we walk in this world, there are times that we still need to have cleansing. We kind of need to have our foot or maybe better, our heart washed. And that comes through this idea of confession and repentance. And then Jesus washed their feet and he put on his robe again. He reclined again and said to them, you, you, you don't know what I've done for you, do you? You call me teacher and Lord, and that's well said, for I am. And so if I, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. See, this is a beautiful, intimate picture of serving and loving each other. And this lesson becomes really important. Again, we're putting this in the context. This is the precursor to John chapter 15. And what Jesus is saying here, he says, guys, if you're going to, you're going to need to learn to do what I've done. You're going to need to learn to love one another. You're going to need to learn to serve each other. And Jesus underscores this because he knows very clearly that they're going to be going through tough times. And we've talked about this a lot in the last few weeks where, where he knows they're going, to face, they're going to face his death and his crucifixion. And they're going to be going, what in the world is going on? They're all going to scatter. Remember, the only disciple at the cross was the apostle John. They're all gone. And he knows that's what's going to happen. And he says, guys, you've got to stick together. You've got to love one another. You've got to serve one another. Because he knows they're going to face tough times. Well, then he moves to John chapter 14. And he's continuing. Same guys is still in the upper room. And he makes a number of promises during this same conversation. If you just note this, if you want John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11, he says, I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. And you know what I'm going to do? Here's the deal. And this has to happen for me. i got to die, and i got to rise again. Why? So that I can go and prepare a place for you, John chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. He talks about this place. He says, I'm going there so you can go there also. Where I go, that's where the Father is, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. This whole chapter is to encourage them. Verses 12 through 14, he says, you don't need to worry because you can talk to me anytime in prayer. Even though I'm not here, I'm going to be available and you can talk to me in prayer. And then in verses uh, chapter 14, 15 through 25, Jesus continues, he says, don't worry. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you. He will be your strength. He will be your counselor. He will be your comforter. He will be your guide. So don't worry. 
Verses 14, chapter 14, 27 through 30 says, don't worry. I'm going to give you the gift of peace. Not as the world gives it. Because you know what? If you walk in this world, and some of you understand this today, uh, it's, it's going to give you a lot of tribulation and trouble. But my peace eclipses the trouble and the tribulation that you'll face in this world. So Jesus and the 11 disciples, now as you get to the end of the chapter, as I noted earlier, they leave and they go down into this valley, into Jerusalem, because Jerusalem, Jerusalem is up in a hill. So they walk to the other side and Jesus is getting ready to head toward Gethsemane. But as they're going through, they come to John chapter 15, and they're walking through Jerusalem, and there's probably, and they get outside of Jerusalem as they're going down, it's probably, they're probably facing some vineyards there, walking through some vineyards. And this is where he begins to use this metaphor and this story about bearing fruit. Then at the end of this object lesson in verse 11, he says, I told you this. I told you all about this serving and loving in heaven, how you can always pray, how the Holy Spirit is going to be with you, how you can have peace. This is all one conversation. And here's this kind of the climax. He says this, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. See, the whole focus of this, loved ones, is he's working to give them encouragement because he knows what's coming. That's why the context becomes so important. Do you think for a minute that Jesus is going through all this? He's teaching them about serving. He's telling them and personifying how to love. And he comes here and he says, I want to give you hope for your future. Do you think he's going to take a detour, an off-ramp, or a U-turn and say, oh, by the way, guys, this, this fruit-bearing thing is really important. But if you don't do it, you're going to burn in hell. <laughs> be encouraged. No. No. He says, I'm telling you these things so that your joy may be full. If I sat here today and I said to you, and you know what? If you're not bearing fruit and if you haven't shared your faith with somebody and you haven't brought somebody to Christ, ah, the embers of hell are burning and they're waiting for you. Are you going to be encouraged or discouraged? or fearful, or have faith. See, that's why the context, loved ones, becomes so important in this process. The context really disproves what, what the, the, that Jesus would be talking about hell, and that interpretation based on the context makes little sense. Context is king. Second thing is you define key words. I spent more time on that, don't worry. Uh, because it's so important that whenever you read, you read around the Scripture. You've got to define key words. To get the right meaning of a Bible verse, you've got to make sure you understand what the word means, not what we think it means. Just because it means something somewhere doesn't mean that it means it there. For instance, have you ever noticed how a lot of words have multiple meanings? I mean, just, just take the words grass and trip. Imagine if I say this, wow, man, I'm, ooh, I was tripping on grass. Yeah, okay, you, you know what I'm talking about. You shouldn't, but some of you do. Or if I said, ouch, man, the grass I was tripping on, it was so thick. See, it's the same words almost, but with a little bit, it's got multiple meanings. Did you know that the word pin in English has 62 different meanings? It could be a stiff piece of wire with a sharp point. It could be a thin fastener to put together bones that are fractured. Uh, it could be part of a lock. It could be part of a... Of a, of a of a baking roller pin. It could be a bowling pin. It could be your number on your credit card. It's what happens when you take somebody down in a wrestling match and you pin them. It's that flag stick that is in a hole. They call it a pin on a golf course green. So when you look at the Bible, it's important that you don't just assume one word means what it means. In John chapter 15, love is used nine times. The word fruit is used nine times. In just these 17 verses, and most of us think we know what love is, and there's, but there's four different words for love. There's eros. There's storge, which is, a storge is family love. Eros is erotic love. Um, uh, phileo is a brotherly love. Uh, agape is God's divine love. So sometimes we, we don't understand even what these words mean. He says here, 
that he wants us to, by our fruit to bring glory to God. So what, is, well, what does fruit mean? Sometimes we think it's, well, he's probably just talking about, oh, the nine fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And I'm sure that that's included in that. But did you know there's other kinds of fruits? The, 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 it appears 44 times in the New Testament. and has at least 10 different meanings. Let me give you just a few. Matthew 3, 8, fruit is used for bring forth fruit of repentance. That means actions that show you're changing your life because of God. Matthew 26, 29 talks about the fruit of the vine. You know what that is? That's talking about wine. Wine in communion. Romans 7, 5 talks about fruit for death. It's talking about a, a, a sinful lifestyle. Galatians 5, 22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, those nine godly attitudes that we're to embrace and to engage in. Hebrews 13, 15 talks about our praise to God, the fruit of our lips, which is the fruit of praise. So you want to be able to define the words that you're dealing with. The third principle of interpretation is you need to interpret unclear verses with clear verses. You interpret unclear verses with clear ones. As you read John chapter 15, it gives three characteristics of fruit. What it means to grow spiritual fruit, you'll see these in verse 4, 8, and 11. Verse 8 says this, remain in me and I remain in you. Remain is the Greek word manao, and it has to do to stay to, to continue, to abide, to connect. Branches that are disconnected from the tree cannot grow. So Jesus is saying, if you're not connected to me, if there isn't some kind of daily ongoing connection, you're not going to be able to grow. He says it that way, no branch can bear fruit. By itself, it must remain in me. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. See, fruit's an inside job, loved ones. Um, it, it, it's produced because of the Holy Spirit is at work in you. A lot of Christ followers will do this. I mean, could you imagine if you, you, know, you picture yourself as a tree, a fruit-bearing tree, and you go, okay, well, I'm not bearing much fruit, so I'm just going to go grab an apple and I'm going to pin it to my coat, you know? Well, no, that's, it's, it, that's just all outward. But that's what a lot of Christians do. They figure like, you know what, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to do a few good works. And all of a sudden they think that's their fruit. No, uh, the, the, the fruit that God's talking about here is produced because we're connected to the person of Jesus Christ. And it's changing us. It's transforming us. It's causing us to live out fruitfulness and to look like him. So if I'm reading that, I'm going to say, okay, bearing fruit is produced by remaining in Jesus. That's the only way it's going to happen. That's not reading into the text. That's just saying, that's the facts, Jack. It's an inside job. Verse 8 says, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So I'd write that down. Bearing fruit brings glory to God. It gives weight to God because people see what I'm doing. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 talks about this, that when people see my good works, they bring glory to the Father. Verse 11 says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So I note this, this third aspect. Wow, bearing fruit will give me joy. So we want to make sure that we allow the Bible and verses to interpret one another. And the, la and the fourth principle of interpretation is look for the most obvious meaning. Look for the most obvious meaning in the text, which is the exact opposite of what many people do today in the church. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kind of step on some holy ground here. Because a lot of people say, you know, this is what a lot of people do. They want to find a deep, hidden meaning in the Bible. Is it like there's some kind of secret, hidden, mysterious, esoteric meaning? But if you believe that and you're always looking for that, you will miss the intent and the purpose of the Bible. Because hear me, loved ones, the Bible isn't full of secrets. If you read in John and 1 John, one of the big heresies of the first century was, a, was Gnosticism. And it was brought on by a group of Gnostics who taught this, that there is, ah, there's, a, there's an upper echelon of spirituality that you can attain to. And so that was the first really heretical doctrine, one of the first heretical doctrines that the church had to deal with. 
in a sense, more to it than that, but, but they kind of believed that there was this esoteric meaning that as you move forward that you would have this greater insight and illumination. And that's not true. Why would God put secrets in the Bible? The purpose is to reveal God, not to conceal God. He's not playing some kind of spiritual game of hide and seek with us. The Bible is this, ollie ollie, income free. Jesus is the Savior. He's not hiding, and there's nothing hidden in there. If you find somebody with some kind of secret meaning, steer clear. If you ever read a verse in the Bible and come up with an interpretation that you have never heard or read about before, you're wrong. For 2,000 years, God's been speaking to his church. If it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Because we've had truth around for thousands of years revealed in God's book. Have you ever noticed, some of you maybe are prophecy students. A lot of people do this in prophecy. Man, they, you know, they, they, they take everything in Revelation and the left wing of the bird of Babylon means this. No, it's a metaphor. It's a picture of something. I think it's 35 years ago when prophecy was um, very, really big, and they were, you know, all of these books were out. And, and let me tell you, I come to Christ a lot because of prophecy. So I'm not discounting, I'm just discounting how we deal with it. But there was a time when you had these people that would say, okay, you know who the Antichrist is, don't you? It's Henry Kissinger. Did you ever hear that? Well, how's that? Well, because, you know, if you take, a, you take the first letter H and you take this uh, number, you, you take this number over here and you put it to that and you put it all together, you add them all up and his first name, his middle name, and his last name, all of those numbers add up to 666. Six, six. I forget that the Bible wasn't written in English, you know, to assign an English letter to it. But you see, you've got to be careful. See, that's eisegesis, not exegesis. That's eisegesis, seeing into something, reading into something that is not God's intent. He never expected us to find out who the Antichrist is. He'll be revealed. When there's a Bible story, every detail doesn't have a spiritual meaning. And that's where people get into trouble. If they try and take every little piece of it and give it a meaning. It is simply part of the story. A lot of Jesus' stories are called parables. And in every parable, a parable has one meaning. And if you read into every detail, friends, you'll begin to read into things. And that's why people can go, oh yeah, that branch, hmm. That is us, but now it says it's going to get thrown into hell. That must be hell fire. That word isn't even the word used for hell. It's the word that's used for fire. Most of the time when the Bible speaks of hell, it uses words like Sheol and Gehenna. So that problem verse, what do we do with it? If anyone does not remain in me, verse 6, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. So let's say Jesus, he's walking through Jerusalem and now he gets on the outskirts and he's walking through a vineyard. Here's his point, a fruitless tree. He probably saw a fruitless vine. If it's fruitless, it's lost its purpose, hasn't it? The purpose of a fruit tree is to have fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, it's not fulfilling its purpose. So he says, what good is a fruitless tree? It's no good. Back then they didn't have microwaves, electricity, gas. You know what they used? Fire. So he says, you know what? If it's fruitless, see this tree is fruit. It's fruitless. It's not fulfilling its purpose. So let's just do this. Let's take it and let's use it for the fire, for firewood. Let's use it purposefully. He's not talking about sending people to hell or people going to hell because he's writing this whole thing to say, I say these things to encourage you, to bless you. And we have to keep the context in mind. So let's go back a little bit. Verse 7 says this, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Notice what he's talking. The context there is about prayer. So he says remaining in Christ produces answered prayers. 
So if that's true, why don't we ask with big prayers? He says, whatever you wish will be given to you. And I know some of you say, well, I've asked for a lot of things and I didn't get whatever I wished for. Well, if God doesn't give you what you ask for, he's got something better for you. And I know that sounds like preacher talk. But maybe you don't think it's better. But I got to tell you, loved ones, as I look back over my life, it's really true. Everything in my life that I thought I wanted, I didn't necessarily need. And God always brought something better. And I could literally give you story after story, whether it's a wife, whether it's a church, whether it's a career or whatever. But keep asking, keep knocking, keep seeking. That's what the scripture says. Uh, in second in John chapter 14, verse 13, they're in the same conversation. Jesus says, I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Answered prayer brings glory to God. He says, when you ask something in my name, guess what? It can bring glory to God. Some of you today possibly are just going through some really tough weeds. You're going through a shaky time. When you get swept off your feet, here's what you do. You simply kneel. Don't fall, kneel, drop to your knees. One of my long-range long mentors said this, never despise whatever drives you to your knees because it is there that you will remain in Christ and get connected and call out to him. He says, second, thirdly, he says, answered prayer gives me complete joy. That's what I would write down too. 20 times in the New Testament, we're commanded to ask, ask, ask God, ask God. That's all about praying and communication with God. So Jesus, in his final words to his disciples, he's, he's, he's heading toward his deathbed. And he says, guys, I want you to ask. When you don't pray, you don't cheat God, you cheat yourselves. Be a person that asks. Well, you know, I ask for a week. Okay, go for a month. If you look at the Bible, a lot of promises weren't fulfilled for years. And some of you are sitting in here today. You understand that. So here's, what's, what's the fruit that he's really talking about here? We've talked about all these different fruits. I'm almost done. Here we are. It's this. We bear fruit through prayer. He's talking about the fruit that comes through prayer. Prayer is the root of all fruit. All of the other virtues in our life, loved ones, come through prayer, the fruit of the Spirit. All of those, the fruit of praise, it comes because we're praying to God. We're seeking God. Prayer is the password for everything that God wants to do in your life. So often, though, we treat prayer like a spare tire. The spare tire is there when you have a flat. When you have a flat and your life goes flat and you're in trouble, well, what do we do? Oh, God, help me, you know? We call those foxhole prayers. I want to be able to have the confidence to be able to pray to God every day, not when a tragedy comes or, a tra or some difficult time comes. I want to know that I've already been there, done that. I am connected to the vine. And I don't have to go, oh, okay, well, boy, I haven't talked to God for a few months, you know? I'm going to drop this bomb on him. Well, he knows about it. But, you know, there's a confidence when you are consistently connected to Jesus, the vine. The Bible says, we've talked about it, that everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice is building his house upon the rock. Those who don't listen and do or those who listen and don't do, they're building it on the sand. That's why this Bible study, this process, loved ones, becomes so critical. One of the problems today in the church is that people all over America, they're going to listen to sermons, but they're not going to do anything about it. They're not going to make a plan. I hear people all the time go, oh, I just want more deep preaching. <laughs> well, explain that. Well, you know, it's, it's more Greek. What do you care about the Greek? I mean, I could throw Greek, and I have a little bit, and, and I, but I, I could throw Greek out all the time. It doesn't make it deep. Oh, I just want to know about the Jebusites. What about them? They're 3,000, 4,000 years back. I mean, they're important. I'm not, I'm not diminishing. Here, this is what you got. You know what the deepest preaching is? The deepest preaching in the world is preaching that changes your character, that changes your attitudes. 
You could fill your mind with every Bible fact and every Bible verse and every Bible background and all the knowledge in the world. And hear me, that is important. We need to understand doctrine and all of those things, but not at the expense of just simply building our heads with stuff that doesn't change our heart. If it doesn't change you and make you a better wife, a better dad, a better spouse, a better husband, a better worker at work, it is simply knowledge. And Jesus didn't come to give us knowledge. He came to transform our life so we become more like him so that in every situation we go into, guess what? We do what he would do to the best of our ability. We don't just go, hey, do you know about the Jebusites? Let me just prove the Bible to you because of them, you know? So what's the key fruit he's talking about here? It's praying. I wear a bracelet. Uh, Monique got it for me because in my journal, I think I told you January 2nd, the first, my first thing on my journal that I put for the new year was pray first. Pray first. That's what... My little thing here says, pray first. I want the fruit of my life to grow because I pray first. I want to remain connected because I pray. I want to experience greater joy because I pray. I say this to you. I've said it a number of times. I look forward to the day when I walk through every Sunday morning this church every service, and I just see little pockets of people praying. Because it's so easy for us to do what? Yeah, brother, I'll pray. Yeah, yeah. someone shares something with you, and, and your response is, they say, well, hey, would you pray for me? Yeah, yeah, I'll pray for you. Instead of stopping right there and grab them and say, can I just pray for you right now? And I told you this, I do it in stores now with people. And so be careful. If you see me in a store and you start talking about you need prayer for something. And most of the time now when I leave people, I say, how can I pray for you? I had a doctor's appointment this last Thursday. And um, I went with my ENT who has known me for, he did my first two sinus surgeries and he's working with me for my next one. Although he's referring me to a specialist because it's a little closer to the brain so that he doesn't want to do it. He's a Christian, and he knows I'm a pastor. So we've had this relationship for about 10 years, and I'm sitting there in this chair, and he's done all of his stuff to me. And he, he looks at me, and he goes, I am so sorry. It breaks my heart that you have to go through this. Wow. And his eyes are kind of glazing over. He goes down to East Bay Fellowship, down in Danville. We were talking about church stuff, and... He's looking at me, and he's almost crying. And he goes, I just, you, you shouldn't have to face this. That's all right, Doc. I'm good. And then he looks at me, and he goes, could, could, could I just pray for you? So I'm sitting there like this, and I go, sure. And so he goes, he takes my hand, he puts his hands over my hands. And he goes, I'm not much, I don't have much prayer power. I said, brother, you got as much as anybody in this room or anybody else around. It's just the fact that you just prayed a sweet, simple prayer over me for healing and God's touch. And it just reminded me, I thought, that's what I want. I want to be like that. In a doctor's office, wherever. Pray first. 